one of the amazing things that I love about this podcast is that I meet incredible people who genuinely have an impact on how I think and do things. And you're going to get the advantage of doing that today with Joseph Fung. Joseph Fung is both a serial entrepreneur as well as the founder of Uvaro. So he's really, really neat. Uh, Canadian as well, which is kind of a bonus. Uh, but before we get into there, let me just jump in and give a shout out and a thanks to the amazing folks that sponsor and make this podcast happen. And that would be our good friends over at Veeam Software. I've got a really, really cool thing. If you head over to vee.am forward slash Disco Posse right now. No, seriously, do it. Go to vee.am forward slash Disco Posse. And this is the wildest thing you're ever going to see. The landing page is fantastic. You get this really cool comic. And I really really love what they're doing around the aws campaign that they're doing so definitely go check it out go to vee.am forward slash disco posse because they've got you covered for everything you need for your data protection needs whether it's on premises in the cloud cloud native that's right yay casting all sorts of neat stuff oh that's right you want to do not just protection in the straight up data protection need but complete disaster recovery and orchestration oh yeah they got you covered. So go to vee.am forward slash discoposse. Make it happen. And of course, while you're at it, wake up with a beautiful sensation that everything is good because you're fully protected by Veeam. And also, you get that incredible, devilishly good flavor of coffee pouring across your happy lips with Diabolical Coffee. So if you want to head over, I'm actually the co-founder of Diabolical Coffee, and I'm very proud that we are doing a really cool thing it's cold brew season get on in we got some cold brew beans we got the best t-shirts in town by an amazing limited edition art run that we're doing with zine rashidi this is something you're going to enjoy so head over to the limited edition shirt section and you can download your own copy of the image so you can see how it's going to look when it's on your back and that is devil's breath one of the best shirts plus also proceeds go to support independent artists that's the way we roll. We want to support new creators. And one more thing before we get to the good stuff, make sure if you want to get better connected with your customers, clients, peers, anybody in the tech industry, if you're in technical sales, product marketing, just about anything, I've created a guide called the four-step guide delivering extraordinary software demos. Super cool. I'm very proud of it. I've had great feedback. So thank you to all the folks that have already downloaded. There's much more to the program. So go to velocityclosing.com. You can actually check it out right there. And uh, well, there's more coming. Anyways, let's get to the good stuff. This is Joseph Fung. Joseph Fung is somebody who I really, really enjoy spending time with. You're going to as well. Uh, he's the CEO of Uvaro. He's cool. We talk about selling. We talk about connecting. We talk about startup, entrepreneurship, running teams, culture. Amazing. Enjoy. This is Joseph Fung with Uvaro, and you're listening to the Disco Posse Podcast. Thank you very much, Joseph, for joining. This is really neat because I love when I get to meet folks, when I look at what you're doing and it immediately makes sense on a problem that I face on a daily basis, both in and out of my my day-to-day -day work. And so it was really, really cool when I saw you come up and Yuvaro was the, was the first name. First, I did a look for you, Joseph Ung, and you know, you've got a really great storied background. You've got a couple of different things we're going to talk about. So for folks that are new to you, Joseph, if you want to introduce yourself, tell, tell us quickly about Uvaro, and then we're going to talk about a lot of stuff in how people can get better at enabling people through the use of technology and proven historical work that's, that's led to this AI. Totally. Thanks so much for having me here, Eric. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. We're going to cover a lot of territory, and this stuff's always near and dear to the heart. Um, for Uvaro, you know, by way of introduction, we're on a mission to help the world's professionals lead more fulfilling careers from their first job to their last. And we got there. I've been a five-time tech founder and CEO, and every time building the people side of the business was always toughest, uh, especially in the sales organization. And we're tackling that problem head on with Uvaro. And we get to see lives changed every single day. And 
wow, is it fulfilling work? It is such a blast. Now, the thing that I always enjoy is when you can see success come in that people realize that there's a repeatable thing that I'm doing mm-hmm. and I can now leverage the fantastic capabilities of software to be able to you know, make that process easier going forward for other folks. And I've done it with uh, with mentoring. Uh, mm-hmm. That was one thing I was like, I keep having the same questions get asked over and over again and effectively then built a playbook. And then through developing this playbook, then I said, okay, now can I build a system that mm-hmm. uses this playbook and you know, doesn't remove the human experience, but enhances the speed at which you can get to the human experience. And this is why I was uh, I was really, really digging in on what you and the team are doing here because you're taking, like you said, multi-time founder. So you've this is not you, you know, straight out of school going, I'm gonna create an idea and then create a thing and then I'm gonna sell that thing. You're literally taking practices that you've developed over the course of time and now mapping them into a system. So if you don't mind, Joseph, let's go into the Wayback Machine and what what gave you the need, you know, in that first time you found it and as you went through this to understand that this was a real, you know, repeated problem that we see all the time. Uh you're talking about the founding of, of Uvaro or that way back or machine yeah, the first even, time. <laughs> yeah, even the pre the pre yeah. Uvaro. I mean, that's uh that's the fun that now folks now they gotta wait, they gotta listen because they want you want the Uvaro story, trust me. Uh, but I the the lead up to it will actually will influence the reason why Uvaro is so important. So I, I've gone through this a few times and the uh, people who look at my my LinkedIn profile, they're like, What the heck is this? It's like marketing tech and <laughs> HR tech and, and there is a, there's a steel cable that links everything through. And it's that idea of building, you know, really rewarding places where you can do your best work. And I think the real trigger was I went to the University of Waterloo, did co-op, and in one of my co-ops at Raytheon, I mean, great space, great co-op leader, but um, Raytheon's a multinational, you know, and they, they do military contracts and we did aircraft, uh, airport surveillance radar and things like that. They had a brand new president coming to visit. Uh, and it, for me as a co-op, like this is super exciting. Like this guy runs a company that's worth billions of dollars. I'm going to learn something new and, you know, maybe accelerate my career. But everybody was terrified. Like, literally, everyone's <laughs> like, "Is he going to shut down the plant? Do you know, is he going to kill a factory? What does this mean? Why is he visiting?" And it struck me that that fear was the wrong way to build a company. Uh, I look back at it now, and I'm like, "Oh." Co-op Joseph thought he could build a better company than Raytheon. And I'm like, oh, yeah. that, that's a very naive thought. But at the time, that's that's exactly what triggered me to do it. It's like, you know what? I can build a place where people feel more aligned, more fulfilled, like they belong, and every step isn't filled with that fear. And that's what got me into building my first company that was more than just a, you know, kind of like a lifestyle business, solopreneur style uh, engagement. And every step of the way, every time since, it's been that same ethos. How do I build a place where people can come and do their best work ever. And now we get a chance to do that for our customers too. And so it feels in many ways like coming full circle. The thing that you highlighted there is this thing of being able to have a different sense of experience through the same exact momentous experience as other people. And it's funny, it's very rare to identify that it's different because most people don't have the empathy to get. They're like, whatever, you know, it's, you're that's a you problem. What most people think, like it's really tough in like everybody's kind of stuck in just trying to figure their own stuff out. Right. And for you to be able to say, like, I'm experiencing this differently than other people. It's notably different. And not only that, but then saying, I wonder if there's a way that I could give them my positive experience. And this is why I really enjoyed, you know, this story of the importance of being able to say, I can gather a different, more positive outcome out of this thing. And I know it's got to be in there, in there somewhere for everybody. How do we unlock that? And I think that's, that's a, a huge thing, right? I mean, it's changing the world in some small way every day. But then most importantly, figuring out as you do this over and over again, through different experiences, through different people, that what are the commonalities that we can ultimately systematize and in doing so then bring it to a sort of productize a people experience, which is, mm-hmm. which is kind of neat. Now, 
Yuvaro definitely was interesting in that you're you're out you're you're directly trying to get to people and help them through this experience. So if you want, let's talk about the heart of Yuvaro and and mm-hmm. what your mission is, other than you know sort of the the basic core that you're you're aiming for. Yeah, I, I mean, the the crux of it comes from this really. Uh, it's funny. It's one of those things. You look at it and you realize, hey, you know, the world's kind of flawed. Uh, but if you think about that career journey that anyone goes on. Um, and I mean, the stats are horrific. You know, average time in roles is like, what, 2.8 years now? That's like 16 different jobs yeah. in your career. Like, what, 15% of people are engaged, 60% do it. The stats are terrible, no matter where you look. Um, and the tools, the systems people have to access, you know, whether it's something like LinkedIn or a job search site like Indeed or um, the various platforms where you're consuming content, uh, the challenge is that all of these platforms, the job seeker, the individual, the professional, is the product. Like they're being sold to companies and to advertisers and things like that. There's no one who's actually aligned to the career journey of the individual. And that's really what's at the core of what we're doing. So, you know, we we start right now, we're focused on sales because every startup, every company has to start somewhere. Uh, and we really help people by providing that that full experience. We deliver training internships, introductions, help people land those new roles, and then the coaching on an ongoing basis. And as a result, people are seeing yeah, you know, amazing, amazing outcomes, uh, more engaging careers. They're talking about it like opportunities of a lifetime. You've changed my life. You saved my life. Um, more income, more job satisfaction. Uh, the engagement level of our grads is so high. And, and change where it matters, like buying houses when they never could have previously looked at it, um, moving out, uh, like one of our one of our students used to rent one room in a two bedroom apartment while he was saving for his son's college education, and he goes through our program, lands a role immediately, and immediately goes and to find a new apartment so that his son can visit and have a place to sleep instead of just like on the floor beside his bed. And that type of change to someone's life is so profound, and it's so much easier when you say, "Hey, I'm focused on your success, not focused on you clicking buttons so my advertisers." can shut the product. And that feels really good because it's a, an alignment of values that seems to be lost in so many businesses right now. So it feels really rewarding. I enjoy that the more companies are at least becoming aware too, that now this becomes the sort of sellability of the benefits of the platform that there's an immediate people, like a direct you know, your clients, your people that use it is me, it's you, it's our friends, it's our peers. Yeah. But then as an organization, I can then look and say, if I'm using Uvaro to empower my team, then they effectively are happier, more engaged, more likely to stay. You know, what was the old, you know, oft misquoted, which I'm about to misquote it again, you know, statement of jobs or whatever, saying like, what happens if we train people and they leave? And he says, what's worse if you don't and they stay, right? Yeah. And the sense that if you if you empower them to leave, I, so I worked for years ago, people can search my LinkedIn, and I worked for a company called Raymond James. Raymond James is a fan, really enjoyable mm-hmm. company to work for. I worked on the tech side, but the way they run their financial services arm is that it's a rarity in the industry that they allow you to own your book. So you bring your customers with you, you know, or you develop your your customer, you know, clientele, and you, if you choose to leave, take it all with you. They give you the data, they give you the accounts, they help you with the migration. If anybody who runs a financial service firm would be disturbed by the idea of doing this, right? Because the whole purpose is they're developing your clients. Raymond James says, no, 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 you're developing your clients and we're helping you to do that. As a result, one of the lowest attrition rates in the industry because nobody feels the need to run away because they don't feel locked in. It's a fantastic thing. And more companies now, I think, especially in tech, are realizing that there's so much opportunity out there. Best thing you can do is to vastly empower your people. It's it's funny because you, you talked about it earlier, that idea of kind of finding finding a problem or solution and then trying to systematize and scale it. And like for me, it's like the, the engineering side of my brain, it's really, you know, how do we optimize and systematize those things? And if we think about a sales org or a support org, you've got, you know, people using your software, interacting with your customers, using your CRM, 
And we spend so much time optimizing you know, the CRM, the buttons, the workflows. We spend right. so little time trying to optimize the people. We just kind of say, you know, we're going to change crap around you and figure it out. And we see when you give people a stronger sense of autonomy, of, of confidence, of a sense that you've invested in them, they perform better. And I love the example of Raymond James because that's, that's a great example. Um, but it, it happens at a smaller scale too. Like we work with right. a lot of startups, a lot of scale ups. You know, a lot of our grads will go on to a, a 50 person company, a 20 person company, a 100 person company. Um, and see the same thing. Our grads ramp, like they get to quota in a third the time at their peers, yeah. and they're twice as likely to exceed quota. So it's like, yeah, it, that's great. That's not about the software. That's not about the buttons and the widgets. That's about investing in the people. And you really can. You can engineer, you can systematize your, your people, your culture. And that's, that's not about making your company robotic. It's about treating people equitably and deliberately without wasting cycles. And it's a very compelling thing to do. Now, this is one that you've hit a word that's important, and that's deliberate. Mm. We, especially in startups, and I say we, I'm, I'm, I'm in a startup, which is no longer a startup. We just got purchased by IBM. We're no, you know, I'm a huge part of a huge company, but in watching the growth of this startup and many others like it, most stuff is not deliberate. It is purely accidental. Like they try to take practices that we see at big organizations. But then the hilarious thing is Eric Reese quotes this in his great his book, Lean Startup. And he says, you get all these people that come from big companies and they go, they create a startup. And the first thing they do is they try and, try and create all this process. And they're like, that's the reason you left the big company. So we kind of look to these big sales, you know, training yeah. organizations and and these like big dollar coaching and empowerment. But if you're not at the right phase of your company, it's it's wasted money. And ultimately it is repeating something that just doesn't match. And that's why, like I said, it's not they're deliberate in their outcome not the outcome of the reps, the outcome mm -hmm. of the back office team, the outcome of everybody in the customer experience. There's a reason we call them customer success now instead of just, you know, help desk. <laughs> the, the, the word deliberate is very important because you have to say like, what is the outcome I'm looking to do for everyone involved? And what can I, I do to reach that? An example of that, because I, I hear from founders all the time, like the idea of like, no, we've got, we've got our values, we've got our culture, you know, our people are really important. Um, and uh, one of the things that I found is that a lot of founders struggle to put it into practice. It's like, like what does it mean? Um, with my previous company, Tribe, uh, at the time that we founded it, so when we just got started, there was a, uh, if you go back and you Google the history and stuff, you'll see there was a bunch of companies in the Toronto, the Waterloo area. Um, and this is like all the, the uh, early, early 2000s, uh, mid 2000s. Uh, There's a bunch that were purchased by US buyers and the team right. was moved. It's like Microsoft buys a team and moves them to Seattle. Google buys a team, moves them you know, down to California. And, and that was this big fear. Like the brain drain was US companies acquiring Canadian talent and shipping themselves to the border. Uh, and when we founded Tribe, one of the commitments we made to the team was we want to build a company where we can scale it for us, for our families. We're gonna never, we're never gonna ask you to move south of the border. We're never gonna, you know, do that. That's that was one of the first commitments we made when we founded it. I think there were seven of us at the time when we said it explicitly in the first meeting. And kind of go fast forward many years. We're selling the company, and we're evaluating two things. This a Series A term sheet that was beautiful, way better than we deserved. <laughs> like, yeah. I looked at our metrics. I looked at that and I was like, wow, you know, that, that was really, really sweet. Um, or this acquisition offer. And we hemmed and hawed and angsted over the decision left, right, and center. And what ended up making it a really easy decision was the idea of kind of rewinding all the way back to those core ideas. Why did we do this? What did we commit to at the beginning? And I realized if we raised the Series A as we envisioned, Part of the next phase of the business, uh, again, HR tech, so knowing your local stuff matters. We'd have to build a go-to-market team in the US. And even if we didn't move anybody, the center of control would end up moving south and all of our investment would be into that US office versus the acquisition. You know, the idea was, let's use this as the kernel of building a large dev presence here 
in the Kitchener Waterloo area. And as soon as we looked at them, we're like, wow, you know, in the first option, we've effectively moved the company south, even if even if we're still incorporated in Canada, even right. if I'm still living here, effectively we've moved it south. But this other example, we get a chance to build something better here for us, our friends, our families, the community. And it suddenly made this like it was like this black and white, the very easy decision. And I think by making it such a principled statement at the beginning, it made later decisions dramatically easier. I did the numbers. I was like, hey, we'll make this if we do this, this if we do that, our shareholders will do this. I analyze it to the 10th degree, like every engineer will. But bringing it back to those core values just made it simple, crystal clear, and a very easy conversation to bring to the team after. It's a, I almost wish there was like a a 50-50 or some like a, a marked reference that we always talk about the fiduciary responsibility of the directors of an, of an organization, right? Like mm-hmm. you have, you're required in order to, you know, to deliver value back to the shareholders, which in most cases in a private firm, of course, is the investors. We know it's a tough responsibility. We know as employees, we hate to see stuff happen that seems counter to the people that work there. But we also know that I know, because I'm a bit deeper into it, decisions are made for financial reasons, which cannot, which would counter, you know, what we believe is the right thing to do, so to speak. But you've, you weighed both sides and said that I've been given a financial opportunity, which while it seems like it could have a long-term potential value to the shareholders, it also means that it could mean I've evacuated my entire employee base and a dissatisfied employee base, which means that has a negative impact on the value of the company, right? So it's, it's very hard to weigh the human impact to the long-term financials and then look at, yeah, what's the, what's the thing you do? So it's, I, again, huge respect that you said, you know, what do we do? You know, I could probably get this money and I could turn it into X and then scale it from there, especially as a startup in, you know, I, I, what do they actually call the, uh, I forget. Uh, so I'm, I'm from Toronto originally, so I, I know the area well. And so, uh, but if you I mean, it used to be back in the day, if you're from Kitchener, Waterloo, you either worked for RIM or you worked for the universities. <laughs> <laughs> or yeah. you, so the fact that startups were popping up and getting funding and being able to stay and continue to employ people is huge, right? That this is yeah. most people, like you said, I, I, I never thought I'd work for a company in tech because I there were no tech companies. They were US companies that had a Canadian presence. Mm-hmm. So I ended up in the financial services sector for 20 years doing system architecture and stuff, but then you know, very different outcomes and goals. So now I say fast forward, much more opportunity in the startup ecosystem. And so you now have the ability to say, look, I can make these people's lives better so they can make their kids' lives better and their peers feel good about things and ultimately hopefully draw more people to these type of ecosystems. It's a, it's a, the only way to put it is it's like a, a privilege to have that opportunity because now I take a look and, and we sold the company to NetSuite who was then sold to Oracle. And I see now there's, there's a tower in downtown Kitchener where like under my stewardship, we snagged two floors Booked the third, hadn't filled it out. I think there are four or five floors now, several hundred people. And just, I mean, people doing some really amazing work. And I've got former colleagues there. I've got friends who then went to work there and working on some really brilliant stuff. And so that expertise is now floating around the local ecosystem. And that's exciting. That's really cool. It's always interesting when you look, it's like when you drive by an old you know, job place or even an old school. And you're like, oh, wow. You think of the time you spent there and the phase of your life and their life and mm-hmm. the world at that time. It must be incredible to look at post-acquisition successes that have been imparted on the people that went with it, which is such a beautiful thing to be able to see happen. Totally. Like one when, when our first employee for Tribe, uh, I mean, what a fun journey. The first job that we posted was for a co-op job because University of Waterloo, support the alma mater, all that. Uh, 
worst freaking job posting ever. I think it's <laughs> <laughs> serious. I never would have applied. Are you kidding? Uh, the job, if I remember right, I think it was something like, um, do you thrive with independent work? You might be the only employee. Uh, do you like high risk, high reward? We're not sure if you'll get paid. Uh, and I mean, so uh, Ryan, who took it, uh, shows up to his first interview at, uh, at a coffee shop sporting the angriest mullet I've ever seen. Uh, and it's, it turns out he's like, an, he was uh, on the hockey team and they were in the playoff. They were, he was just letting it grow because I was a part of the team thing. Uh, oh, and my co-founder was like, you know what? If he's brave enough to wear that to an interview, he's brave enough to work for us. Let's go. Let's uh, do it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like all startups, you're hacking it together. So, I mean, our first office was like one room in the back of a car dealership because that's where we could get some free desk space. And uh, Ryan, crushed like just did a great job through all the curveballs that we threw at him he ran with it um you know uh, it did a great job through the exit and the the acquisition so you know made a change to, to kind of him and, and his wife's life uh still still there like working in the security organization amazing building amazing stuff and uh so you can see like the individuals and the, and the fun stories but he also gets to now act as that thread of continuity as the organization has grown around him. And that's super cool. I always think of it as like full metal jackets, you know, where like they start off and you see the guys getting their heads shaved and like they're the new recruits. <laughs> and then the second half of the movie is them being the seasoned people bringing in the next class. And it's like, it's, it is cool to um, see that folks can thrive through those changes. Cause another thing I've discovered is there's often not staging type of training and coaching. Yep. It, you In the startup ecosystem, you find there's a lot of players at a space, a level, a growth. So you get these sort of teams that just come in and they're like SWAT teams. They just come in, they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm from like half a million to 10 million in revenue. That's it. They, the moment they hit like 15 million in revenue, they start to get weirded out and they leave. But a lot of folks survive those sort of SWAT team in infusions and there's nothing for them through those progressions. That's what I'm, I'm curious. Where do you see different types of training and coaching and mentoring that can be done for folks to, you know, say, Hey, if you want to be a, if you want to be the five to 10 million kid, go for it. We'll, we'll enable you for that. But if you want to, yeah thrive from 1 million to a hundred million, then we've got something that we can help you through all the way. So it, I'd love to be phrased like that idea of that kind of stage appropriate training. Um, and the reality is I, I don't think I've seen anything like it. That's, you know, specific training offerings. Like, Hey, go, go take this course to learn what it's like to go from like, you know, one, 2 million series A to 10 million junior series B. Um, I think where the, the onus really lies though, is ultimately on leadership in many ways. Uh, I suppose there's actually two answers to that. For us on the Yovaro side, one of the big things we do is we do, we spend a lot of time talking about what it's like selling into the different groups. And the reason we do it is not because we think people need to know the different mechanisms, but what we found is when people fit and they go into an organization that fits what they want to do, they're more successful. Right. Like, it, what's better than knowing the different stages is knowing where you thrive. And so in sales, that's things like, if the company's early and figuring it out, you're gonna do the full cycle, <laughs> whether it's an, yeah. or an enterprise sale, like you own the whole thing. And that comes with all the stress and all the dynamism and all of that. But if you like being an expert in your domain, a more established company will have more defined roles, still a lot of room to carve out new territories, to build new features, but you're gonna have some better guidelines, some better mentorship we're doing that in the sales side of things. And so that's why I think we have such a good hit rate, but I've never seen anything like that across a company. And one of the things I always try to do as a founder is spend time with my teams, just talking about what you should expect to see in the coming year. You know, and sometimes it's really simple things like we're really early. So, Hey, uh, sales team or engineering team, you're all reporting to me. That's going to stop. And it's not because they don't like you. And it's not because you're no yeah. longer relevant, but it's, as we scale that, that, happens and it, we talked about that SWAT team if you had people who've gone through this before their heads are nodding they're like yeah that makes sense I got this you know nope. yeah let's go but the people who've never been in through it before that's terrifying 
it's really terrifying. And I think as founders, we spend so much time just being scared about everything we're doing. We forget how, how, <laughs> yeah. how disruptive that is for most people. You know, they're, they're trying to crank out a marketing campaign, cr crank out a bit of code, crank out some support lines. And all of a sudden it feels like the world was turned upside down because of an org chart change. Like we, we wield a lot more influence in people's lives than we really internalize sometimes. Well, and this, it raises the importance of this idea of creating coaching and mentoring programs to, to make sure that people can, yes. can know they've got some baseline, they've got something they can lean into. Because quite often that's all, like culture is a classic thing. One of my favorite, you know, I've, I've read far too many books and I've got far too many unread ones on my shelf as well. But the culture code is one that I still reread often. You know, Legacy by James Kerr as well. Also a fantastic one talking about the New Zealand All Blacks. And this idea that like culture is the way they behave when you're not looking. And as much as the, the masthead behind the receptionist's desk says, you know, we are a people company. When the people on Slack are saying, yes, yeah, it's not a people company. <laughs> you know, like it's yeah. that begins to happen. And that can ultimately infuse that sort of interfere and that, misunderstanding of what's next so and and it I, becomes pervasive in the culture and there's as a founder you can't be like pouring over the entire organization constantly to look for that you've got to create a system that you can let them sort of self-discover hopefully and, and ultimately stave it off i want to come back to that system thing but i also want to ask in a local ecosystem i don't know if you've noticed this but i find every Every five or six years, it's like the same blog post or article pops back up. And it's like a CEO whose company got to, typically it's somewhere between 50 and 100 people. And the blog post usually goes something like this. Culture can't be created. It's the thing that emerges and you need to let it grow and then document and capture what happened. And it drives me nuts because what that tells me is it's a founder or CEO that ignored their culture until it got to a point where they said, crap, I got to get my arms around it. And now that I get my arms around it, I'm going to you know, expound upon why this is a normal thing. Uh, and I, personally, I find it very frustrating because I'm a very firm believer that you can be very deliberate in your culture. And if you do it at day zero, if you start at day zero, it's so much easier, like forevermore. It's I mean, if you want to get an analogy, it's like SEO or it's like code quality or anything. Like if you start paying attention to it early on, it's way easier to maintain. Yeah. Why do we not have culture debt? Like we have technical debt, we have financial debt, we have all these things, but yet somehow they don't, they don't attack this idea that that is a effectively a cultural debt we create that we're like, we'll get to this we later. We'll, we'll, we'll write it down once we discover it. Like, no, that's <laughs> the thing you discover won't be the thing you wanted because you yeah. didn't hire into culture. Yeah. You hired and culture came out of it. You don't want your culture to be a side effect. Like, right. We tend to think about it as like internally for us, we think about it as a separate thing. It's like the product. It's, hey, this process we're changing, how's it going to impact the culture? Or, hey, yeah. you know, it's, it's time for us to clean up some of the edges. Or, hey, let's upgrade it. Or let's invest Got to go more. to culture 2.0 yeah. is ready. Let's, uh, let's get it put into place. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's funny. Like, it raises all these silly metaphors, but it, it is. Like, if you think about it, something that takes on this life of its own, and how do you make something that will last beyond the founders, the CEO, the founding team, the customers, the product, the market? Because all those things will change. Yeah. Like, how do you create something that has more longevity and uh, actually a good riff you talked about scaling you know what people say behind the scenes i'll share um so we've honed this over a couple of companies and i love you, you raised that question earlier on like things that you you get better at every time this is something i think we do really well uh the idea of conversations like manager employee one-on-ones yes do those that's regular i'm sure everybody who's listening does these already if not pretend you are because you should be let's put a big hold if yeah. you haven't i need you to stop and write that in your to-do yeah. list and put it on your bloody calendar because it needs to happen yeah. <laughs> like at minimum bi-weekly make it happen whatever um but we see one-on-ones as one of three redundant layers for culture communications yeah so it's kind of like security you know defense and depth so we we do our one-on-ones separately we have a system of executive buddies 
So we have our, our upper layer of management, our executive team, and we will pair every employee with an executive that is not in their direct line of report. And it's not intended to be structured one-on-ones. It's not intended to be backdoor conversations, but it's a chance to get an executive who is mentoring you, coaching you through your conversations, giving you another perspective, letting you try on email language for size, conversation language for size, challenging assumptions. You know, it's like, hey, I was in that one-on-one and I don't know what my boss thought about me. Well, that's what you got an exec buddy. So that's our second tier. And that's that builds the mentorship skill in our executives too. And it's a great reminder that all of their direct reports are having conversations. And then our third layer, um, we run these regular meetings, we call them hello friends. And we have an employee, she's part of our, our people and culture team, but she's not responsible for like HR processes. She's not responsible for recruiting. You know, this is her primary responsibility. And she does regular drop-in coffees with people. And it's confidential. It's like kind of cone of silence, check in, how are you doing? How's the team doing? How are you feeling? What are you worried about? And her job is to look for trends and highlight worrying signs. Uh, and nothing identifiable. Her job is to anonymize. Like her job is to say, hey, these are the things your people are worried about. You know, watch for it. Yeah. Because we're not going to catch everything. And like thinking about your systems, your people systems, in the same way you think about like your security or your processes, like the holes become very glaring very quickly. Well, it becomes a matter of you can't create a system if it doesn't ultimately have a feedback loop. And if we think mm-hmm. of like the classic OODA loop, right? So you observe, yeah. this is the, you know, see what's going on, orient based on the what's happening and the signals, then decide, okay, I can either deal with this X way or Y way or whatever it's going to be. What, what do we do about this particular signal? Do we integrate it as core? Do we, you know, deal with it as anomalous, whatever, and then act and then what do you put in place? And ultimately that then feeds back to changing the way that you observe and orient because you then have to take that into account to the next thing. Like these signals are very non, sometimes even nonverbal, but they're not what people will fill out in the anonymous employee survey that went to your corporate email <laughs> that has your email in the URL when you click it. Like, like you know, when or my favorite thing, I work for a marketing team you know, at the time we were when we were still a small organization relative to our chunk of the world. So it says like, you know, this is completely anonymous. What team do you work for? Okay, I work for marketing. Well, it's down to 30 people. Okay. What uh where do you live? I I mean at the time I was in, in Toronto. I'm like, so that's it. I'm immediately not anonymous. I'm the yeah. only marketing person in Toronto. Uh, this is not anonymous at all. You know? And there's no option of like, don't fill this section out. Like, So you're going to fill out the survey based on what you believe they want the survey to say um, yeah. for the most part, which is unfortunate versus like you said, getting out there and saying, look, I know I work for this company, but I don't affect your pay. I affect the way that we help you get better people are more likely to be open in, in their discussions. It's uh, you have to separate it. Human resources is such a strange thing. And, you know, now we call them chief people officer or whatever the, whatever the, the title of, you know, that's the trendy title is going to be is the fact that you have to separate the people experience from legal and payroll, which is fundamentally what a lot of human resources teams are. They call it culture, but in the end you, you have a you're there to protect the company from liability, protect the employee from liability. It's hard to split that line and really make culture a part of the human and people organization. I think it's also a lot of companies, uh, and I, I tend to see this in in kind of first time or earlier stage founders a little bit more, um, where they believe ownership of that culture sits inside an HR organization. So they try to hire someone and say, "Hey, go fix this." Right. Oh, 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 yeah. Also, in compliance and, and payroll and uh, recruiting uh, and company events, do all that and fix culture while you're at it. And I think there's only a few things that can you know, sit on that CEO's plate, you know, unequivocally. It's like, don't run out of money. Yeah. Don't screw up the culture. Yeah. I, I kind of put those up there. So I think it's it's really easy to believe that you've hired someone and that solves the problem. Um, but I, I think founders need to make sure that they don't forget that they're ultimately responsible for it. Yeah, and it's tough. Like you said, those two core responsibilities. What's the you're you're responsible for growing the company 
and reducing risk. And of course, one of the biggest ones is keeping the company alive. You know, ultimately, there's two reasons that the companies fail. They either run out of money or the founders leave. You know, they choose to exit the situation. It's generally finances will be the biggest thing that take that company out. But, you know, this is so it's good. I mean, I, I love the idea. Now, here's the, the interesting thing. Speaking of loop. So how much of the work that you have through Uvaro then ultimately feeds back to the next time you do things? And as you bring back, okay, based on the last six months, we've noticed some different signals coming from people. Maybe we should integrate it. How does that continue to evolve as you build the practice? Constantly. I mean, so much of what we architected was around optimizing the feedback loops. And I think a really good comparison would be things like... Uh, if you look at post-secondary education, you know, they generally do an annual intake cycle. And if they're launching a new program or a new course, you'll know, they'll run it once, get the class through, take a term or semester to kind of think about the feedback, maybe offer it the next year. So you look at this annual cycle. And yeah. if you're on year-long sprints, you're, you're just not, you know, <laughs> exactly not, yeah. not gonna go well. Yeah. Um, when we founded Uvaro, uh, it, it so our program is a three-month program. Uh, it's it scares the crap out of our team. We're like, you know what? We're going to launch a, a group every month. You know, day one is like a uh, group every month. So by the time we get to the second group, we've got a month's worth of feedback. You know, by the time we get to the, the third group, we've got two first months and one second month worth of feedback. And so our our processes bake that in as we go. Everything from like regular feedback surveys, check ins, follow up with our uh, alumni and our grads. Um, we've just moved to launching multiple cohorts a month, uh, and oh, the goal nice. is by the end of the year to be doing weekly. Uh, and you can't you can't do that if you don't have feedback you know baked right in. And the part that's been really cool is we've got we have our, our training programs, uh, but we also have uh, the Kite software platform that's used by like tens of tens of thousands of sales reps across North America. So we get to see what are the types of you know content or features or items like. Are people talking about objection handling? Are they talking about security? Are they talking about customer stories? And so we get both that kind of usage data to influence our curriculum and our programming, but we also get that really, really tight feedback cycle with our classes because we're launching them every few weeks. And you're, you're right, without that loop, you're just doing the same thing again and again, and you're not improving. This is the, the beautiful merger where you can have many systems ultimately feed each other because you're you're doing things. Let's talk about Kite actually, because we we talked at the very start. I wanted to make sure that I gave it uh, due, uh, you know, advertisement here. And that's actually advertisement sounds so awful, but I like it, it deserves recognition. I actually I I use the platform, so I uh, I'm very deep in this idea because we're all in sales. Bad news, kids, you're all in sales. You may not be directly in sales, but you're supporting sales. I work in technical marketing, so I have to understand objections and competitive mm -hmm. plays and stuff. And so I looked at it and it was, it, it was immediately obvious how fantastic it was going to be because it just made sense. Yeah. Again, like you said, Bert, it, then from there, it can help to influence the, the purely human enablement side. So this is a, an amazing thing. How, how lucky is it and how hard did you work to get that lucky of <laughs> taking the approach of having a, a systematized productized thing and then having it ultimately feed another another business yeah I, it's it's funny because where we are right now we look at it like wow there's so much good fortune there um and the journey kind of when you break it into the steps makes a lot more sense and and it was very deliberate i mean the kite platform is it's used primarily by tech companies you know scale-ups and Fantastic, fantastic companies. We've got great, great teams using it. Uh, the part that was really cool was our go-to-market strategy was working with sales trainers. So if you're a company and you bring somebody in to build your sales process, uh, they might leave behind a bunch of PDFs or they might leave behind kite playbooks. Uh, and so we had these fantastic firms that were doing sales training, kind of running our programs. And as we started to dig into the kite usage data, like literally, a fantastic IRAP project. So, I mean, you want to toss in all the elements of a story, like government-funded research to figure out what the heck to do with all this data. Yeah. Um, we uncovered these really interesting insights, like silly little things. Like um, we looked at our, our highest-performing customers. 
you know, the ones who are growing fastest, adding team members, crushing sales goals. Uh, and by and large, they had way more uh, information about their personas and their target customers, but surprisingly, way less about objection handling. And that really had us scratching our heads because, I mean, sales trainers always spend time on objection handling, like how do you handle those? And what we uncovered was that there was this inverse correlation. So across the board, the companies that did a really good job of doubling down on their personas, their buyers, their details, didn't have the same need for objection handling. So as a result, in our curriculum, they're not treated as two separate subjects. It's treated as the same thing. You know, How do your personas, your ICPs influence your objection handling? So how do you emphasize the one, decrease the other? drive up your total growth. Uh, and so on an ongoing basis, we get to pull out these insights, you know, these methodologies and push the Uvaro curriculum. Uh, and even to when we launched the first version of Uvaro, like it all came from our customers on the software side. We talked to them and say, hey, how do we get you to use more software? <laughs> what do we do? <laughs> yeah. um, and they'd all say, hey, our biggest trouble is hiring, hiring great sales reps. Because we, we hire people, but no one knows how to sell software. And so we bring in these trainers, they, they cost an arm and leg and they do great work, but because they cost so much, we can only bring them in annually, maybe every six months. And so right. you hire someone, they have to wait six months for the next sales cycle. No wonder it takes them eight months to ramp. And so when they said, hey, if there was a way to hire more people who had some software training experience, and that's not simply just go recruit from LinkedIn or Salesforce, like there's a, there's a supply demand imbalance, like there's what, 50, 60,000 B2B software sales reps out there in North America. We need another 360,000 over the next decade. We can't all just hire from LinkedIn. Uh, the need became really apparent. The I think curriculum. I know what my next job is now. Good golly. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's like a, it, it's an absolute supply demand. This is, is terrifying the difference that we're about to face in the next while. When I was going into university, all the conversation was like the world's going to need more you know, computer scientists and computer engineers, uh, except for like the 99 hiccup. Like just as we were all getting into it, and then we were all like, "Oh crap! None of us are gonna have jobs." Really. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Glad we were wrong. <laughs> but if I, if I, so I've got two kids. If they're graduating right now, and I was trying to say, "Hey, if you want like some really good job security for like the next ten years," that's what I'd be pointing out at them because that that imbalance in supply and demand is so, and that's just in tech. Like great Gartner studies, like the way all business products are being sold are gonna look like the way we sell SaaS and. Yeah, that, that that's not more robots and less humans. That's just automate the crap so the human element carries more weight. That's exciting. Yeah, this is the the thing that I and try to tell people of like we use all these products to improve processes. See, I'm sorry, I can, I'm you're a Canadian, so I can say this without making you wince. I say process and project. <laughs> the uh, but we do this. It always has to be to empower the people to do better and create measurability, which is a really, this is the tough line. And I'm, you're close to this. So I'm curious at what point when people detect their KPIs or attached to their performance, start to change the way they behave. This is the Eli Goldratt thing from mm -hmm. the goal. He says, show me how you measure me and I'll show you how I'll behave. And it's a dangerous thing where when you realize you're being trained towards a KPI, then all you're eyeing is the KPI, not the behavior that ultimately drives the outcome, which is a measurable thing via a KPI. So how do we, how are you finding people successful at for not looking at the fact that they're being watched for that metric? It's funny because, um, we never try to encourage people to imagine they're not being watched uh, because it, A, they're going to be up for a rude awakening uh, at some point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Is that going to be a boss who has the conversation or a colleague like over beers? Like, by the way, you know about this? I'm like, oh my, yeah. Uh, really what we try to do is we try to make sure that it, it's not really up to the individual to manage that situation. It really is up to leaders and management. Um, I, I really like... Uh, I think this is an area, honestly, where marketing and sales and most areas of the organization can learn from engineering. Like in, in an engineering organization, um, at the end of the day, you'll have some high level you know, outputs, like uh, overall development velocity, or maybe it's uh, product quality and uptime, like whatever your North Star is for your organization, and, and that'll vary. But you've instrumented your development process 
you know, all the time, like code coverage, mm, whip rate on your sprints, um, you know, velocity or variance on it, uh, delivery versus commit. And, you know, having a really strong sense of like, here's this North star, but the process is bigger than any one of us. So if we sense there's something off in the process, how do we choose to focus on a KP KPI for a while to make sure that that's not the hangup? And once that's good, we bring that lens over and focus on, and depending on the engineer, you say this is like the lens or the, the magnifying glass or the eye or Sauron, uh, you know, we're gonna focus on a different area of the process. Uh, and most engineering teams that I've worked with are fairly comfortable with that. It's like, hey, maybe for the next sprint or the next quarter, we're gonna pay attention to, you know, test, you know, uh, reliability or uptime or coverage or whatever it is. Um, what I've seen in sales and marketing is there's not that same sense of the sales and marketing process is external to the individuals. It's this thing we're trying to improve. And so people take the KPIs and the ownership uh, of them very personally. You know, they think about their open rate on their emails or their click-through right. rate or their engagement on the content. And they think about it as them succeeding or failing, not about the system working or not. And ultimately, I think that's when that happens, that's a failure of leadership, you know, not helping the team separate themselves from the sales process. Because I've seen more sales reps lose it, uh, lose their jobs or leave an organization because the process was wrong, not because of their individual failing. And that, that's a, it's a hard thing to separate, but it's super important to try. Funny that you know, and I mentioned Goldrat, which is apropos to, you know, this idea of like within engineering, of course, this is what Gene Kim and and mm -hmm. and the team developed when they talked about the 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 Phoenix project and and since then they've they've done the DevOps handbook. So these are methodologies that you know, and it works. Like if you set this marker of quality or whatever it is, you you set the measurement, you move the constraint, you know, and ultimately we're always attacking the constraint. And, it, and as a result, it affects the goal. And the goal is, yeah, velocity, yeah. quality, whatever. In sales, it's different because in engineering, no one says, hey, you squashed you know, 400 bugs this quarter. So next quarter, I'm setting it to 500. Like, it's very different because in sales, it's always like, you're gonna give 110%, kid. Like, it, there's an unfortunate sort of screaming coach from the sidelines mentality. I mean, they, that is the, I'll say the lifestyle of a sales organization is they, they think and act differently. They set big, hairy, audacious goals. Engineering cannot do that because it means that they will set themselves up for failure. So they learn to like tighten the measurement to tighten the success rates. So I mean, this is, I wonder if there's a way that we could get better at like empowering sales without taking the go get them kid, you know, kind of, of capability in it. Well, I, I think there's also to a certain extent, uh, you know, confounding kind of a few statements in there. Um, I see a lot of engineering teams who set some really audacious goals. Like, Hey, you know what, we're going to ship this feature for Q1. And you know what, maybe all the bells, all the whistles, all the stories won't make it in, but you know, we're going to kill it. We're going to do a, a hackathon to make it happen. And yeah. you know, we're, we're going to kind of pull out all the stops and really make sure this delivers. And, and it's really exciting. Um, so I see teams do that and sales teams, you know, have their analogy with, you know, kind of quarter goals or upgrades or things like that. Um, and I think every team needs their version of that. Uh, and, the sales version is very much like that. Um, what gets convolved, though, is there are some bad management practices that happen. Uh, you, you gave an example there of like, you know, as soon as you you hit success, you move the goalpost. Right. Or, <laughs> um, you know, choosing. Good news is you made your quota. Bad yeah. news is your quota just went up by 30% for next year, which is why you see a lot of sales teams ultimately do a stint, right? They'll do two years, they'll do a strong relationship sale, and then they go to another company and build, take their relationships with them kind of idea. Yeah. And, and I mean, there's, there's definitely some management practices that, that exacerbate it. Um, but I think that's a really good example as well of if the organization doesn't separate out the process from the people that feels terrible. Right. Like, if we zoom out for a level, like great, as a company, we get better. Our marketing team starts doing their job better. So now we have better quality leads. Our sales automation is better. So we're, you know, filtering out 
bad quality leads at a better rate. Our product is better. So now customers like it more. We have more customers, so we have better testimonials. Yes, the sales motion as a result is likely easier. So yes, it makes sense that quotas and territories may shift. Likewise, as we scale a sales team, we've got more people. We'll have to draw new territory boundaries. And it's really important, I think, as a company that you talk about those systems as the process and that those things happen because the company is succeeding, not because a failure of the individual. And likewise, your managers need to be really committed, invested to the success of the individuals so that the things you do when you succeed aren't feeling like you're penalizing the people who got you there. Because you're right. Otherwise, it feels like, great, you hit your quota, so we're raising the quota. Great, you're a top-performing sales rep, so we're splitting your territory. <laughs> yeah, we're throwing you in Wisconsin. You know, I, I, I shouldn't joke about that. Wisconsin has a massive market. I've always, we, I, I sort of joke about some of the poor dairy producers in Wisconsin. Uh, millions upon millions of dollars in, in revenue come out of, out of you know, Wisconsin because there's a ton of actual industry there. But totally. this, it's this whole thing really, of like, yeah, you do great small. in the Northeast, and they're like, okay, we're sending it to Nebraska, kid. You know, we need to we need to get that territory off the ground. You're like, no, <laughs> I can't have my quote out there. You hit the nail on the head, though. Like, imagine a rep where you're like, hey, you used to be in California. You, you know, you got like, you know, 30, 40 million people as your patch, and now you're in Wisconsin, you've got less than six. Like, yeah, it's really hard to just say those stats and not leave somebody feeling like you just punched them in the stomach. And you got to separate the two. It's like, hey, great. As a company, we're at the next stage so we can rejigger these things. This is what we need. We're asking you to do it because we have the most confidence in you. It's a scary thing. What can we do to help you succeed and make this a win for you? Very yeah. different conversation than like, great, we're downsizing your territory by you know, <laughs> you know five-sixths. Yeah, we're taking you off of two named accounts that you built up from the ground up, and it's because it's like you've you've yeah. done an amazing thing. We're handing it to this rep that needs to cut his teeth a bit more. You know, we've got a yeah. new AE, and she's really great. So we're gonna let her take over this big account. And you're like, no, 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 no. But I mean, who knows, right? Like, but you've and the sale goes beyond the initial sale. This is the other thing too is that people often forget is that renewals are. This is what we get measured on is RR, yeah. not just R. Recurring revenue yes. is the what will bury a company. Selling a bunch of stuff once is not a successful sales organization. It, it's, it's changing the culture of sales and ultimately the playbook goes along with it because you don't just have to defend it once. You've got to continuously make sure the product represents the outcomes the customer needs and that you can continue to represent the value relative to the price that you're charging. Seems fundamental and simple, but it's hard to do because also you're fighting for organizations that, hey, look, we just went through COVID. Revenues for those companies went down. So they we have to get way better as a vendor to present value. And it may mean sacrifices in a lot of different directions. And it may mean we lose accounts for no reason other than the fact that they just need to tighten down. It's really hard. And one of the things that I see is that a lot of a lot of teams haven't they haven't fully instrumented their business. Uh, and it, people often miss that that idea of churn, like that, that's an upper limit of how big you're going to grow. Like your growth hits an asymptote and its position is governed by your churn rate. And right. the difference between like, a 2% churn, a five, a 10, I've seen as bad as 30, like that brings your upper growth limit down. And a lot of teams fail to realize that if you've got a growth curve and you try to make it steeper, you try to hire more sales reps, you invest more marketing, you want to grow steeper. The side effect is it can often bring down that churn. And you really don't want what looked like this nice, smooth growth curve to suddenly be a square wave. Because if you do that, you're capping the value of your business and it can look really great. You can raise money, but then you hit that cap really hard and it feels like just crashing into a ceiling. And that sets you up for, for down rounds if you're fundraising, turnover on your people, bad customer experiences. So it, it's tough. Sometimes you have to forgo that speedy, speedy, speedy growth just for that long-term opportunity with the company. Well, this raises an interesting thing of, you know, we've talked, you've, you've had, you know, multiple companies you've you founded 
Uh, you're very successful in the two that you're working with now. You've empowered a lot of people, which is amazing. Uh, the trouble I have often when we talk to a lot of founders, especially serial founders, is we, we talk the same way when we talk to poker players. And no one talks about the hundred hands they lost that never, that they got dumped out. They were like, they weren't even like in the top 100 in a tournament. They make it to the World Series of Poker, but then they lose tournament after tournament after tournament again. But they have the drive to learn, feedback, come at yeah. it, like, and, and go at it again. So I'm curious, Joseph, look, I, I don't want to spend dark thoughts on it, but... <laughs> What have been some challenges that you've had to go through in, in your own personal history? So, it, I mean, there's all the, every startup has various forms of like founder drama, investor drama, acquisition drama. And if you talk to anybody, you're going to get the same stories. So uh, <laughs> I'm always happy to riff on those, but I know we have limited time. Um, oh, yeah, two, yeah, yeah. Now, we're almost done here. <laughs> yeah, two, two things that stuck out to me, though. Um, it's funny because, yeah, we could frame them as challenges. I've always felt them as like really good learning opportunities. Um, uh, one of my earliest companies, we were selling a white-labeled web content management system, uh, like WordPress, but before WordPress existed. And right. uh, we had a unique solution where we sold through advertising agencies, marketers, and it was totally white-labeled because uh, at the time, everybody was worried about, uh, everyone had a, quote, web guy. It was very gendered. It was the language they were using. But yeah, they, were yeah. web guy. they always worried about that person stealing their clients. Um, White labeled solution, really great. We had an upfront fee, subscription offering, uh, but this was before kind of SaaS as a as a delivery mechanism. And one of the things we recognized was the entire way we we thought about the app, we thought about mobility. You know, people needed to upload it, host it themselves. They, you know, if if we went down, they could keep the website forever. Um, we had to bake a lot of things into it to serve the market at the time, but we recognized that the our market was a very specific buyer and we would have to have a fundamentally different business to get to the broader pool of website owners. Uh, and uh, we recognized that it wasn't, that wasn't a challenge we were going to readily overcome. And so we split the company into and sold it uh, because we recognized the opportunity wasn't there. And that, that was a tough, it was like a tough pill to swallow to say, Hey, you know what? We picked a direction. We had some good success, you know, good growth, but we are not in the right position to see the kind of outcome that we really want. It was a good outcome, made money back for our like, friends and family investors, you know, right. put a notch on the belt, sold the company. Uh, but kind of had the, <laughs> one of my friends said it the right way. He's like, it's like, you know, you got that kid and you suddenly, you look at it with honest eyes and go, oh, I've got an ugly baby. Crap. And it just, it, it wasn't going to have the the opportunity we wanted. That was a tough one. Um, and we tried our most recent customer. Uh, this is a classic. Like, we're a Canadian company selling into North America, the US. And we never fully internalized how miserably painful benefits enrollment and payroll are in the States. Um, Amen to that. <laughs> read the blog post, talked to the customers, but we never felt it because we'd never run payroll and benefits internally until we really got there with US employees and we recognized how exquisitely painful it was. And we realized we had underemphasized that area of our product so badly we were now a good year and a half, two years behind where that space wanted to be. And so as we were looking at the next step, it was like, hey, here's a massive investment for us to stay ahead and, and in many ways catch up and exceed the competition versus selling the company. And that influenced our decision a lot. And uh, the interesting thing is one of our, our, our premium investors, like best investors on our board, great, ended up after our sale investing and doubling down in another HR tech company. And so there's definitely a lot of feeling like, oh, you know, could, could that have been us? Could we? But the reality is everything we saw happen in this space, we realized, you know, we made the right decision. We made the right call. We it honestly evaluated the decisions we'd made. And now with everything that we knew, we're, we're making, again, a good decision. So, yeah, it's, it. it's hard to reflect honestly on the work that you do and then not beat yourself up over it. Well, and, and I appreciate, like you said, you framed it beautifully, Joseph, and it's been a real pleasure to spend time. You know, the idea of, of lessons in that lessons and signals that feedback to choices and, and the way that we build and continue to learn. Uh, so I'll make sure I have links, of course, to Uvaro and to Kite for folks that want to get in. Get in. I said, I'm a fan of Kite. Uh, this is like 
this is so bloody easy. I can't, I can't believe how easy it was. So uh, I, I do appreciate it. And it's been a real pleasure. Uh, and if folks, if they want to reach out to you directly, Joseph, what's the best way that they can do that? Oh, they can hit me up on LinkedIn, Instagram. I'm on most social as uh, at Joseph Fung. Uh, always welcome the outreach, especially with other founders. So uh, always nice. everything. Very cool. Well, Joseph, thank you very much. It's been a real uh, great conversation. I look forward to catching up again and we can talk about the next phase of growth and, and whatever's next as well. Absolutely, Eric. Thanks for having me on.